Welcome to Airwave. Airwave is a conversation hosted by me, Morgan Page, where music and technology converge to tell the stories behind the artists and the architects of creativity and technology. Radio is where I first discovered electronic music in the countryside of Vermont, and music and technology provided the path forward. Airwave is an exploration of how people make their art and how technology plays an essential role in the process. The show is largely conversational, but doesn't shy away from going deep and technical in the process. I remember Avicii first tried him on, he's like, you know, this is the future. I mean, he was producing most of his tracks on the V-Motors. Headphones are an insignificant category, they told me. And that's why we put them behind the alarm clock radios. And so I really wasn't sure if we were going to succeed at that point, you know, because everyone said that the headphones were not fashion and I really was like trying to knock it over the head. And so I'm like, wow, this is the biggest opportunity I've ever seen in my life. I got to create designer headphones. All right. Welcome to Airwave. This week, my guest is Val Colton. He is the founder of V-Moda Headphones, the man who put the V in V-Moda. They're one of the first brands to make headphones fashionable long before Beats with some models costing over $40,000 for a rare platinum 3D printed version. But most of the versions you've seen used by DJs like Martin Garrix, the Chainsmokers, Avicii when he was still around, are the $200 Crossfades, a legendary pair of headphones that is a personal favorite of mine, used for touring, used for the podcast right now. So we talk a lot about the early beginnings of the company, the thought process behind every little detail in the design, everything from the case to the plates, to the cushions, and how they impact the sound quality. So we go deep into the design philosophy, how we built the patents, how we built the whole process of the company. Vimoda was later sold to Roland, and now Val is starting new ventures that will use his strengths in design and fashion. So excited to see where he goes next. It's a great discussion. We get deep into the details as usual in Airwave. So enjoy. This is Airwave with Morgan Page. Airwave is brought to you by RME Audio. Innovative, user-friendly, and high-quality digital audio solutions, RME offers a comprehensive range of audio interfaces, converters, and mic preamps, all based around its unique and innovative core technologies. Multi-platform connectivity across Windows and Mac OS and iOS class compliance has earned RME a global reputation for providing support to all users on all platforms. Visit rme-usa.com to learn more. I wanted to start out with the background, starting from the beginning. I was researching you and trying to get a little more information, and it's almost mysterious. I see some background info on you, but take me back to Texas and growing up there and how you got into this crazy world of tech. Yeah, so you know, I always thought I was going to try to be like the next Bill Gates or Larry Ellison, and so I studied uh, MIS, uh, Management Information Systems, at University of Texas at Austin, which yeah. at the time was the third best school in the country behind MIT and Carnegie Mellon. Uh, so really, I really wanted to get a technical background in programming, but also have a business, uh, add the business layer to my knowledge. So it was in the business school. And yeah, so I studied, before that, I was, I've been programming since I was a little kid, since I was like seven. So wow. um, I've always just been a really diehard do-it-yourselfer and, you know, taking apart every toy, building RC cars, um, building my own car stereo systems uh, the day I turned 16. And it's really kind of gave me a lot of that background of um, my dad. I was lucky that my dad gave me the tools to allow me to learn and kind of guided me and got, got me programming books when I was seven and helped me to learn how to program uh, when I was a little, just a little kid, basically. And, and yeah, so I think that really kind of that do-it-yourself kind of electrical and build-it-yourself mentality has just kind of always been in my DNA. And what did your dad do for a living? Attorney, uh, did tax, tax law and real estate trusts and wills and stuff. 
So did he have a love of engineering and electronics as well? Yeah, it was interesting because he always he was into RC cars, radio-controlled cars. He was really into engines, like in boats and stuff like that, little small boats. And um, so he was always into car mechanics more than anything, and really a, a car fanatic. Um, but he he saw that I really liked computers. He wasn't a computer guy. It's kind of before his time. You know, he was more the calculator guy in his era. But he definitely saw that I loved the first computers that came out, from the TI-81 to the Commodore 64s and and so he saw how much joy it brought in my life to have the early IBMs and Tandy 1000s. And, and uh, yeah, those, those things were expensive back then. So the fact that I was the only person using them and he actually spent a lot of money back in the day to get me a, a PC set up, which was not cheap back then. I mean, it's yeah. four to 5,000, I'm sure. Reprogramming games on the TI-82? I remember the first thing was Hello World uh, in like the, the GW Basic or whatever it was yeah. back then. And um, yeah, that really, I just remember sitting that, in that basement just relentlessly learning how to program and um, download games back then and, and uh, you know, go on bulletin board services before the internet because you used to have to call one modem to another modem. You can always go point to point. Computers weren't networked back then. Yeah. So it was really an interesting era. Uh, and then to see how everything grew up to then be in 1984, the, where we made steps up in the video games and all the way to the Nintendos and then to where we are today uh, and, and all the technology that's followed along that has been a I think we were lucky, lucky years to grow up then because yeah. we saw the technology go from nothing, from just cassette tapes all the, and eight tracks when I was first, you know, growing up to then see the first PCs and the first gaming machines and then all the way to where we are today in, in the future with AR and VR. And it's really an exciting time to see yeah. that whole trajectory in, in, in real time and trying to be on top of it. I remember when people thought that the internet was this fad, it was a thing, <laughs> and nobody thought you'd purchase anything online. That was like a real public opinion at the time was, it's just a little weird technology trend and it'll blow over. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I first saw the internet, is that my, it's like in the library, like I think it was like Gopher or something. And, yeah. you know, it was like the first time I started using it. I'm like, this is actually, in some email there, I'm like, this is actually pretty cool. I could see that this could be really useful. And then what started off as a library education system is kind of the IP technologies enabled everything. Yeah. Because uh, just not paying long distance to call one computer was just uh, very expensive at the time. And installing that second phone line <laughs> was a real task, a real yeah. expense. Yeah. Yeah, it was like $100 to, just to get it installed. And yeah. Yeah. And awesome. I lived in an area code that didn't have too many good computers to call. So, you know, getting my parents to try to get me to call long distance was not really kind of in, the, in their budget. Yeah. <laughs> so. What was the town you grew up in? I grew up in uh, Arlington, where the Dallas Cowboys Stadium is. Previous to that, I was born in Chicago. It's so funny that you mentioned Arlington, because have you been following what the Cirque du Soleil founder is doing in Arlington right now? No, Like no. he's launching the Pyramid. So his next form of live entertainment is going to be resting on 5G to kind of scale the, the event and the performance. It's an immersive experience, and they've built these pyramids in Arlington. Hmm. Yeah, I guess it's kind of an interesting area. Growing up, they, they put a lot of the entertainment stuff there. So like the baseball stadium, the Six Flags, Wet and Wild. And then they put the baseball stadium, the Cowboys stadium is all there. So It's between uh, Dallas and Fort Worth. Yeah, it's in between right. Dallas and Fort Worth because right. it's one mega city. And uh, it's in between the two. They've, they've been doing some big esports, which I'm going to check out next time I go there. Yeah. So it's really kind of a cool area of the country. And, you know, Austin, where I went to school, is definitely uh, the hotbed for technology and kind of where everyone's heading to nowadays as well. So Texas is... I think it has a good future in technology and entertainment. Yeah. Believe it or not. So you knew early on, you, you got your like 10,000 hours in early 
before you were 12, did you have all that enough coding experience to know this is what you wanted to do? Yeah, yeah. I pretty much just said die hard. There was like no going back. I'm going to be in technology. I thought I was going to be a programmer. Then, of course, hopefully be a manager. And uh, I've, at the time, I wanted to just work for some big technology companies. Like I just wanted to work for Microsoft or Apple or, or Oracle or something. Um, I wasn't really thinking about starting my own back then. But after graduating college, being an uh, information systems consultant and did uh, database programming, uh, a lot of... Microsoft certified engineering, uh, built complex databases. I did, I think my first big project was the billing system for the state of Texas, TXU's uh, billing system to bill customers. So that was kind of a huge project. And my brain's still uh, doing the billing system for that database and creating the database tables uh, and the stored procedures. It still keeps, keeps me up at night still today. You're still working on the project in your mind? Yeah, it was tough, man. I feel like it's like waking up and, uh, realizing you haven't showed up to class all year. And this is a nightmare I have where I, it's like, I haven't been to class all year and I'm taking the test and I don't have any of the answers. Yeah. Yeah. I still feel like I still have this nightmare that I didn't finish my last course in school and yet I did. Yeah. So feel like your credit's short. Totally. Yeah. I'm one credit short. And I don't know why I have that it's a common dream yeah. for people, but it's great. It's great <laughs> to wake up. And if I, once I unpack, find my diploma again and I'll yeah. have to put the diploma on the wall and be like, dude, you actually did take all your classes and you did pretty good too. <laughs> yeah. It, it's a recurring dream. So you were doing the software work then, and then what led to getting into the hardware development? How did you make that leap? Well, the hardware kind of came later. I was working as a management consultant, doing IT consulting and management consulting um, in, in Dallas, and then ended up was going to work for Enron. Wow. Uh, so I quit that job, and I was actually going to work for Enron, and then they kind of went belly up, and I was without a job while I was on vacation, and I found out in California. So I said, uh, well, they, I don't have a job anymore, so... I guess I'm going to go back to school. I was actually developing a lot of technology like that was is today Waze and Google Maps. And I thought I had a lot of patents because I knew that GPS was going to yeah. be integrated into yeah. phones eventually. With So I was like, uh, going to go to law school. This guy wanted me to work for an advertising company doing the technology for it to do email blast and email marketing and, and uh, all sorts of marketing online. And, and so uh, we did the truth campaign, the anti-smoking commercials. Uh, which you might have remember. Yeah, we actually be- became the agency of charge of that truth campaign, and so I was doing all the running, all the advertising for that. So I learned a lot about the marketing, and then also running the CRM system. So that t- taught me a lot of, in different areas that I really did, wanted to polish up on, and messaging and branding, and working with a lot of artists. So that was a really cool way to get me to branch out of just the technology and then work with artists on all the, you know, coming up with new cool, uh, there was a really cool and edgy ad campaign. So yeah. it really taught me a lot about branding. And, and I think that really helped me when I did decide to start Vmoda and developing a brand, you know, what pushed you to make hardware? Like, did you see headphones out there and weren't satisfied with what was being offered? Well, I was in a trip to Ibiza, which was the first time I ever left North America. And I just thought that when I heard this electronic music and I saw people singing along to some some early songs, these European girls actually know these songs like pop songs. And I was like really just floored that they, they could actually sing along. I could see them in the streets singing, you know, in, in Paris and in Italy after I left Ibiza. And I'm like, these people are actually singing these pop songs. You know, house music, electronic music is going to be outside the warehouse someday. And I was always into warehouse and underground stuff. But Europe's really, it, it's already becoming mainstream. I'm like, this is the future. So I really decided right then and there on that plane ride, I was going to quit my job and just do something around music and create a music brand. I originally thought I was just going to get into production and DJing um, and just become a music producer of house music yeah. um, or create a record label. And the hardware actually came later when I was after I kind of 
created this music lifestyle brand in my head and kind of created the name already, Vimoda. And then um, I bought the highest end speakers I could, which are actually outside in my truck right now that I just got out of storage, uh, which was some you know, $12,000 pair of speakers that I maxed out my credit card on. And my roommate, I got all my production equipment set up and my roommate was like, you know what, you better get some headphones or I'm moving out. <laughs> and so, so then I kind of went on this audio quest for the best headphones. And that's when I discovered that there wasn't any good headphones out there. But then, um, then I started to get into headphones, but I wasn't, wasn't going to make them. I just was trying to buy them. So I went to Japan and just kind of went collecting headphones and kind of got into that as well. Just like I like uh, car stereo speakers and I like home speakers. Um, but then what really happened was I was on uh, Cannon Drive or Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills. I saw a girl walk out of her Rolls Royce and she was uh, wearing the white earbuds. And I was like, wow, you know what? You know, I just went looking for headphones. Like, and I just bought some really cool home speakers that were red. And she's wearing white plastic earbuds that, in, out of a Rolls Royce. And she's wearing like a feather hat. And I was like, wow, fashion headphones. That's the future. I had the ball on the three yard line and there was like no defense at all. This might be like a 97 yard run to get a touchdown, but there's no defense at all playing. There is zero colored headphones in the market. And it wasn't fashion. Yeah. So it was you just an accessory. You can only get black and white headphones back then. You know, Apple actually, in fact, before Apple, I remembered in the eighties, I had all these yellow Sony Walkman headphones um, that were, the yellow went, meant active or sport. And um, I was like, wow, there used to be colored headphones. And then all of a sudden, there was only white and black and, and white was because of the AirPods or the iPods. And then I'm like, okay, there's gotta be colored headphones somewhere. So there was zero in America. So I traveled to Japan, zero. I was shocked. So it was just the Sony sports versions of the Walkman. There was yellow, yellow right? Yeah. in the eighties. They weren't even selling them. I don't think at the time or they weren't easily, easily found. And then there was just white and black and that was it in gray. And so I went to Japan. I'm like, okay, sure. You know, at this time there was already cases for the iPods. Um, it was iPods back then only there was cases that, to make your iPod different color, like pink, but you couldn't get pink headphone anywhere. Yeah. And I'm like, then I'm like, I went to China. I'm like, sure enough, they, they've got to have colored headphones in China. Nope. There were some caps on the headphones that would be like pink, but I couldn't find any with a color cable that was besides white and black. So I'm like, wow, this is the biggest opportunity I've ever seen in my life. I got to create designer headphones in metal and I got to make colored headphones. So I made, uh, so then I went on this rush to develop headphones and I made 11 colors is what we launched, is what I launched with. I can't patent colored headphones, but I was the first to come out with colored headphones. So, you know, it's kind of nowadays I look at every time I go to a 7-Eleven and I see colored headphones at the cash register for a couple bucks or they're, they're giving away on Virgin airplanes or something. I don't know. Um, yeah. You know, colored headphones. I'm like, geez, it's kind of hard to believe that I was the first person to invent colored headphones. I knew we'd be copied quickly. You know, Skull Candy came out like right after us and they saw me at a trade show and then the guy must have had a light bulb go off in his head. I kind of showed my cards too early. And then uh, Skullcandy and other brands copied, you know, very quick, but that's why I came up with metal headphones because I knew that they were going to copy us on the low end, but I, I figured let's go high end, medium end and, you know, started, you know, do $200 headphones immediately. Yeah. And then hopefully get our price points up to 300 and do over ear headphones. And so, yeah, that was how kind of the, the industry got jump started. I think, quite a bit. So in Apple you were saying was more minimal with their color focus at that time, because before they had all the iMacs and this, you know, all these different versions with the translucent computers, there was a trans translucent version, but there was a blue and they looked like candy yeah. at that time. Yeah. And then did Apple just pivot in their creative approach where they just said, we, we, we need to go more minimal, just grays, whites, blacks. Yeah. Well, I think it was a brilliant move by Apple is what they did is with the iPods and 
and the iPod Nanos. It's so hard to even say iPod now because it's like you're just yeah, not used to words. It's out of your vocabulary. It's like, it's like yeah. out of my vocabulary. I'm like, am I supposed to say AirPod or AirPod? No, iPods. So if you remember, they made like a U2 edition, uh, special edition Project Reds versions. Yeah. So I partnered with them, and you know, we would the day that they would come out with like a Project Red version of the iPod Nano or was the, the iPod and U2 editions. You know, we would I would color match and make sure that we had a headphone to match. But they. You know, remember their billboards always had that white headphone with a shadow person. So that was kind of their image was to always go with the white headphone. And that was like, uh, and then have the colored iPod variations. But they always wanted to stay focused with the white headphone. As you see, even today with the AirPods, they only have it in white. And they really, except for Beats, which is owned by Apple, they still have only made a white headphone since the beginning of the fact, uh, I guess they've, since any time that I've known that Apple's made a headphone, they've always been white. So they've really kept with that. Yeah. theme, just like their power adapters, I guess. And yeah. tell me about when you first teamed up with Apple, like this was the groundswell that really launched everything. Like how yeah. did this all come about? Yeah. I remember, uh, my first customer that I sold to was actually Virgin music store. And then I'm like, okay, we're going to actually make it. So I was going door to door selling headphones and then they're like, Oh, you shouldn't sell those into fashion stores. They're, they're technology. I'm like, no headphones are wearable technology. They're like, no, no fashion stores would even see me out. They're like, sell to Best Buy. And then I went to Best Buy and they're like, well, headphones are insignificant category. They told me, and that's wow. why we put them behind the alarm clock radios. And so I really wasn't sure if we were going to succeed at that point because everyone said that the headphones were not fashion. And I really was like trying to knock it over the head. And Best Buy was saying that headphones are just not they're not a significant category and fashion stores said that they're not fashion, they're technology. So I was really kind of stuck. And then, um, I ended up getting some meetings with Apple and that's really where things really took off. And they kind of saw my vision and they, they, they saw it and they thought it was pretty brilliant. And I ended up working really closely with them and developing the first, uh, you know, getting our first products out, the vibe, which was our third product that we launched. And that was really wanted to be, I, the vibe was my first product I wanted to launch. I just had to relaunch launch a couple before that to kind of learn how to develop headphones. And then I really worked closely with Apple to develop the product and the, the, the color selection and the packaging. And, you know, I was up at night at 12, 1 a.m. And the, the guys, uh, the buyers there at the time were really energetic and really liked me a lot. So it was, it was a great working relationship with Apple. And we specifically tailored the products to sell at the Apple store. And we really became their go-to high-end headphone brand. And that was uh, really what put us on the map. Yeah. And so how did you get prototypes done? Like, were you hand building these at first and soldering them in a lab or how did you get a working version? Yeah. Well, so the very first colored headphones maybe in the world were spray painted on my back porch. <laughs> so wow. I actually, actually I took Apple's, Apple's uh, earbuds and spray painted them. And, and, uh, people were like laughing at me like, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I just want to kind of test what, what colored headphones look like. Cause I've never seen one <laughs> except for the yellow Sony's. So, so that was the first, but then of course I went to, uh, to sourcing and just found every single manufacturer I could. And I just went on a shotgun approach. I said, I don't know anything about making products in Asia. So I just got samples from every single company in Korea and China and, and any place else that was making headphones. I said, send me your best samples and the best sounding ones. And then I kind of narrowed it down. Like there's three that sounded good out of like 300 factories I worked with. Wow. And so I visited those three factories in person after I got all the samples in from from Alibaba or whatever back then. Yeah, it's still Alibaba, I think back then is what I kind of used. And then found all the factories that made headphones and then selected the three that sound the best. And those are the factories that I used to begin with. So these are OEMs, original equipment manufacturers? Well, they have the, yeah, the OEMs, they'll tailor it for you. And then to even source cables in color at the time, they couldn't even source colored cables. It was a really interesting time, but we finally got them to get the cable companies to make different colors. And then 
Pantone matching the, the, the cables to the headphones units themselves was just a very big pain back then because they weren't used to it. So getting them to match properly was uh, almost impossible. Uh, now it's much easier because now uh, people make a lot of colored headphones. So but back then it was a very new field. Yeah, we take it for granted now that it's yeah. fashion and it's something you wear on your yeah. neck. Yeah, and- like I can't believe like we did like dozens of prototypes to like match a red cap to a red cable and, and different painting processes. And I'm like, geez, why can't this be done easily now? Nowadays, I mean, you just don't even have to worry about that. It's they have all the color calibration machines and people how to make colored cables now pretty easily, so it's not even a worry anymore. And I remember even in the DJ world, the aesthetic was pretty bulky and boring and yeah. black and silver and i won't yeah. mention the manufacturers but <laughs> it was it were really unergonomic and heavier and they would make loud snapping sounds when you pivot the uh, ear cup yeah so i mean really i want my first headphone that i ever envisioned was just doing this masterpiece a headphone made out of marble um that was like kind of my grand vision of like what i wanted to make at the very first headphone and it was more kind of like a dj over your headphone and we uh, we never actually even launched it but everything kind of everything that i dreamed of kind of made its way into what i actually developed and you know when you mentioned the what djs and, and audiophiles were listening to and what a lot of them still do it's, it's just this very bulky circular um thing that really looks like a piece of the their dj equipment versus on their head versus a fashion or something that's an extension of their personality. And that's really where I wanted to develop the headphones to be more of a, an extension of the person and your headwear versus like, an, like your actual mixer, which is kind of what it reminded me of. These mixers and CDJs and, and audio file equipment is just very bulky and you look like a helicopter pilot, you know? Yeah. And um, then the swivels were also a big deal because um, that, that made them very fragile. And uh, DJs back then, when they had really bad swivels, they'd always tape up their swivels so it kind of looked like they had like nerd glasses or something. So yeah. I was like, yeah, we got to get rid of the swivel. That's kind of where I thought of to make it more ergonomic. You know, I thought about how flip phones went out of style to kind of be more, uh, to be more flat because of the, you know, hinges are tough to make as we're seeing back today as we're doing new flip phones again, but hinges are a very difficult part of a, a product to make durable. And that's uh, where we kind of went with the headband being, giving you the hinge-like the flexible headband, the experience of being able to twist the headphone with that steel flex headband, but by keeping the ergonomics low profile and then also making it so that uh, you have less moving parts to break. So yeah. that's part of our big breakthrough with our over-ear headphones. So I feel like there was the, the only slim, slightly ergonomic headphones were the Sennheisers that everybody had that were black. And then they had, I think Adidas did like a blue edition. Yeah. But those are the only ones, those ones I started with after trying a bunch of bulky brands that were just very plasticky and finicky yeah and then but the sennheisers i never thought were some people love the sound of them because they know that reference they felt like the ns10s of dj headphones like not mm-hmm. a ton of bass yeah, very good luck hearing on an airplane what you're the edit you're working on or whatever yeah. yeah sony's were very popular back then as the as the dj headphones and they still are uh pretty popular even for production some basic the 7506s 7506s yeah. those were just classics right i wanted to make that i think the m100 kind of the HD25 Sennheiser became a classic, but to me, they, they all have their own sound signatures. And to me, the HD25 is definitely very f- forward and bright, especially in 8 to 12K. It seems to be boosted. For some people, it's all right. But I was actually pretty young when I started Vimoto in my 20s and had pretty good hearing in my highs. It's definitely too high and aggressive for me and definitely not enough bass because I really wanted to feel like I, I think the bass is such a great part of music, especially with house and dance music and modern pop music, that you really need that kick drum and the, and the bass lines to 
that you can feel. And Why was it so conservative with the way that these headphones are tuned at that time? That the bass was like, oh, we don't want to yeah. go with the bass. Bass right. was like a bad word, I mean, in the audiophile community. And it was really interesting. That's why I kind of coined the term audiophile. Mod- it's like a modern audiophile because, you know, the music that I grew up listening to does have bass in it. And I want it to be in there. And, you know, I even remember... You know, speaking to so many producers that have produced on Vimotas are like, yeah, I need the Vimota because it has the bass in there and that kick drum that I need for when, when people listen to their headphones or listen to it at a club. I, I remember Avicii first tried them on. He's like, this is the future. I mean, he was producing that, most of his tracks on the Vimotas. And, and yeah, um, I think it was, you know, it kind of got a bad rap in the audiophile community of thinking that the bass was, it was kind of a placebo effect that the bass would run into the mids and muddy the mids or something somehow. And it, probably did quite a bit on lots of bass heavy headphones. Like the, uh, there was like some big bass heavy headphones or cheaper brands. And we kind of solved that problem by developing a dual diaphragm driver. So we kind of separated the bass layer from the, from the mids uh, so that it wouldn't distort, you know, crossover as much without using a crossover. And that was kind of our breakthrough to give you that, that sub level and even get down to low 20 Hertz that you can feel. Yeah. And then, uh, but still keep that organic mid range and then really tweaking them to highs as well. So kind of taking it in three different approaches. The big part, going back to your question also was not only the, uh, the type of style of music that they're listening to. So when I went to these headphone meets and the reason why audio files don't like bass, I was listening to the music like, okay, what are they listening to? It's pretty much orchestral music and, and acoustic wow. music and jazz that might've had a little bit of a bass guitar in there or something, but just really very instrumental and acoustic based music. And I'm like, okay, well that makes a little bit more sense then because if it's all piano or orchestral, this isn't electronic music, but nothing that they're listening to was even like Depeche Mode or something from the eighties that had electronic kick drums. It was all acoustics and instrumentals and stuff. And it were not of singing. I'm like, okay, well that's maybe the, the style of their music of that older generation audiophile definitely didn't even have the, the requirements of having a bass drum. <laughs> and it would, they would exaggerate yeah. in, a, in a way that wasn't complimentary to the sound. Exactly, right? yeah. When it was, all their music was recorded on real microphones from analog instruments, and nothing was like today with an electronic in a DAW where you can just drag and drop your envelopes for how much bass you want and yeah. if you want LFO or not, uh, you know, low frequencies. So now I, you can see more of a divide on the headphone forums and stuff that there, people say, okay, you're a bass head and you understand you listen to music that has bass in it. And, and I think it's kind of going to shift now. So the future, pretty much all headphones and uh, all the music, primarily the people that aren't listening to just like orchestral and, and some classical music will, will want to have uh, much more bass presence, but still they want to have that clarity in the highs, which is really what we've, uh, our last headphones that, we, that I worked at with Vimoda and released, that we're able to get that nice bass extension, but make them Japan Audio Society, high-res audio certified. Yeah. Uh, past 40 kilohertz. So I kind of gave the best of both worlds. And, and then uh, in, the, in the actual headphone itself, you can always uh, EQ later if you really just want to drop out the, the low, you know, below 60 hertz or something for certain styles of music. It's, it's funny because these engineers seem to want to capture realism and in a clinical way, like keeping it flat. But in a way, if it's applied to electronic music, it's taking away the whole vibe and actually is taking away realism from, yeah. from synthetic music. If they say as the artist intended, you know, any EDM or even modern pop music nowadays, which is become, you know, kind of merging today, right? I mean, as you could say, or even hip hop music, you know, it's all done on DAW and they really want to have that, uh, you know, shoot, even in the 80s when I was listening to rap, Sir Mix, Sir Mix a lot with my, you know, they wanted to put that big kick drum in there and bass and, you know, so... Yeah, I really think that it's, it's uh, we've seen a big shift to where 
the sound signatures have changed, and you know, I think more and more, I think the M100 was my first uh, sound curve where I think everyone was happy, from the audiophiles to the to the DJs. When the CrossFit LP came out, the DJs loved it, and everyone loved it, but it was still the audiophiles thought it was wasn't just right. So then I really did that crowdsourced tuning and got uh, over 200 people involved. And I really kind of made it, okay, let's get it to, so we have a happy medium between where uh, all of the most audiophile snobs on the forums and, and editors and PR people would, would, would approve of it and also get the DJs to approve of it. And How do you do that? How do you get that common ground? Because everyone, headphones are so subjective. Yeah, so they are subjective. And then there's what's called the Fletcher-Munson curve, which is a psychoacoustic, where the highs and lows kind of change based on how loud you listen. But yeah, so... Really, it just takes a lot of testing, and you know, I'd always listen, see what, what volume people are listening at, what they're listening to, what styles of music, and then really watch their feedback at the forums and meetups in person, uh, and really kind of get, use my gut feeling. And at the end of the day, I, you know, it's pretty hard to make a decision for like what possibly millions of people are going to listen to their headphones on, and I kind of without watering it down too. Yeah, so you know, I kind of I felt like I had a big. It's really difficult because I'm like, okay, whatever sound signature I end up with, you know hopefully millions of people also are going to be listening to their music through that. And so to make that final decision is always extremely difficult, but, uh, but I just kind of think I'm going through every person's head, you know, at the final stages, I'm like, okay, that one guy that was listening to, to orchestral music at 50% volume, that's interesting. Is it going to sound good for him? You know, that right. I definitely want to use a Vimoda and I'm like, ah, maybe I have to leave him out of the equation. Sometimes I, or sometimes I might try to try out his song that I, I took a picture of at a, at a meet and just try it out and just all the voices in my head to, to kind of make that final decision. And, you know, a lot of it wasn't just the, the tuning of the headphone, but the tuning of the cushions because the, that's the last mile to go to your ear. Uh, it's kind of like the room for speakers and it's such an important part because everyone's ear, everyone's head shape is uh, so different. So how do you tune a material? Well, there's a lot, there's a lot to do with it. Um, so the volume that it allows um, in there, the, the actual softness of the material, the volume of the inside, how big the XY is, um, makes a big difference. When I was working at Vimoda, we actually did various size cushions and then uh, lots of holes inside of it. There's a lot of black magic that, that happens behind the scenes. Also that maybe too much secret sauce to tell you today. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it's, it's those little details in the airflow mechanics, porting after the fact that in the stage of development, you always lock in the driver first, and then you can work on the airflow, the filters, and the tuning papers, and, and the cushions, and, the ten, and also the tension of the, the headbands to how, how tight they sit on your ears. So all those little things make such a huge variance. And um, of course, everyone's ears and heads are different. So slightly variances, but you're trying to minimize those variances and use a lot of test groups and a yeah. lot of measurements to make sure that uh, different shapes of heads have similar forces on the ears. You were so, telling me even sweat makes a difference on, on the break-in of how it sounds. You know, burn-in of drivers or burn-in is actually has to do with a little bit more of uh, the, the colored material or, and the, the pigments that are inside the material to color things can make a big difference. So whether it's an in-ear headphone with black fittings or clear fittings, the black's going to be a little bit stiffer and uh, might take a little bit time, more time than the clear fittings. So uh, you'll have different sound signatures, uh, even just based on the colored fittings on your headphones. So there's a lot of variables when you get down to the details that uh, not many consumers know about and, uh, or, or even want to think about yeah. <laughs> once you know the details. If there is a true amount of time that you should test out a speaker or a headphone and really get used to it and also make sure you have the right size uh, fittings or, for your head.
And so that is a real thing though of burn-in. I mean, I feel like they, the BMO does sound good out of the gate already. Yeah. And some hi-fi companies are like, well, you gotta, maybe it's more with speakers, but you gotta yeah. have like oh, 200 hours of burn-in or something just to get the sound. Is yeah. that less of an issue these days? I think that burn-in is, is a little bit of an interesting thing because one thing is, it's, is you're starting to get used to it too. You're starting to adjust like you're, maybe just as much as your, he- your headphones or your speakers are starting to adjust because it's you know, something new and different, right? So yeah. You can have that knee-jerk reaction to something. Yeah, yeah. you yeah. might have a knee-jerk reaction, but, but from, from a real physical p- perspective, there definitely is uh, you know, the coils, the, the membranes. The, the, they do need some time to kind of to kind of adjust and get into their groove. And like we just discussed, the pigments need to break, uh, break and loosen up a bit. But, but on the manufacturing assembly line, you're always doing really strict testing to make sure that they sound as they should out of the box, yeah. uh, no matter what. So I think the, the burn-in definitely is the last, you know, little 2% or 3% of making it yeah. sound in its final stages. But, you know, 98% of it is already locked in at the factory. Nice. Um, okay, so you've, you've had the success with this groundswell, working with Apple, uh, you were able to partner with them on these projects and had a lot of success with that. So did they, were they licensing the tech or was it just more of a partnership? Yeah. I mean, with Apple and Vimoto, you know, we really were just working close with them as a, as a, as a, as a close vendor and, you know, trying to be their fastest moving vendor. So, you know, like the day that the iPhone launched, we had our headphones ready to go in the store, you know? So, um, that was, we were the only company that could ever pull that off because essentially, one man wrecking crew of me and wow. my helpers, but I could make all the decisions really quickly and, and I uh, had some good help that would execute so we could get headphones out quickly and really launch them on time with, with them. And did you have, you have family working with you at the time when you, the early Vimoto days? My brother helped out at the very beginning, but yeah, it was mostly, mostly me. And yeah. uh, then I hired the first person that we hired was uh, a guy named Joe Bucknell, who developed our artwork and brand design and, and with me. And then, uh, then I hired some people that had worked from different various headphone companies to kind of help me with the sourcing and quality control, which has always just been the biggest headache of building a product. Yeah. So you get some of the DNA in from other companies, people with yeah. a lot of headphone experience. Yeah. So, I, you know, I brought, you know, JBL at the time was headquartered near in, in Los Angeles. And so brought in some people from there and brought in some people that had worked with Sennheiser at the very beginning and various companies to get that quality control and engineering uh, experience that I didn't have at the time. You're like the Tesla of headphones. Yeah, maybe, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like they've reassembled all the, the gene pool of the best of the car industry into one company. People think it all comes from scratch, but it's really a, a recombination of that industry knowledge. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of funny to see, you know, all the headphone brands that kind of that followed us and were born from us and some employees that then founded other companies and uh, yeah. really, you know, from Beats, the guys calling me before they founded Beats and, you know, just, you know, all the people that kind of were inspired by us and, and then all the, what happened in the fashion headphone industry and then the celebrity headphone industry that then followed after that, which was just a horrible dark period of headphones <laughs> where even Snooki was making her own headphones and then, uh, yeah, bedazzling I, headphones. It was just a really bad area era of this celebrity headphones and we never did that. So we tried to always, you know, make the headphone be for you. And uh, that's why we did the customization and made you the endorse yourself was the saying that we came up with versus doing celebrity yeah. headphones, which I thought were really cheesy. Instead of wearing someone else's style, yeah. you could do your own style. Yeah. So I think that really caught on with the DJs, you know, and I really want to promote yourself and 
you should be all about Morgan Page, you shouldn't be all about Avicii or whatever brand, whether you're a, just a normal DJ doing weddings, you really need to promote yourself on social media and have your name on your headphones to make a name for yourself. It's one of the few fashion points you can make as a DJ, since I feel like I always end up wearing a dark V-neck or something. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. I mean, DJs kind of wear jeans and t-shirts, and, uh, but the headphones has definitely got to be the, the part of yeah. your attire that, that stands out. You know what's funny? I remember that V-Moto is being used as a reference. I went at Beats meetings. So like Jimmy Iovine <laughs> asked me to come in and meet with him. I don't know if wow. I ever told you the story. Uh, it was Zed's manager told me like, oh, Jimmy wants to meet you and we're working on some headphones. And I think it was for Geta's line of beats. Mm. And I came in and they had Vimoda set up, a couple of their, I think some Sennheisers. Mm -hmm. They had like their competitors. Yeah. And I picked up the Vimodas and I said, why does everyone grab those? What do you like about them so much? <laughs> and they were like quizzing me on Vimodas. Yeah. And it was a real quick meeting. Uh, and they were, I guess they were building the design, because basically Geta's version of the beats were basically Sennheisers that sounded better and were even louder. Um, but it was just a funny moment where... Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously beats, I've heard the same stories where they had a lot of Vimotas around and our marketing material. And then, of course, we once they started, and you know, I, I didn't think that they were going to be so big. So I was like, okay, you know, there'll just be another little headphone company, that, you know, not, not a big competitor, you know, but just help build the industry and out bigger and then to see where, where they went. And of course we went, we followed our own path. You know, I always wanted to create metal headphones and do, do it the hard way. They're still very different headphones. Yeah. Yeah. They're so different. I mean, so I don't think that a lot of, we had a lot of overlap of customers in fact, you know, but you both knew the strong suit was fashion. Yeah. I think you'd say that definitely, you know, putting design as a, as a, big part of it element and saying that bass could be in a nice headphone, which they eventually finally got. Some, don't be scared of bass. Yeah. Don't be scared of bass. But I think that the people that bought Vimotas were definitely different consumers. So I didn't see them as a competitor forever. Uh, seen as more of a, you know, kind of building, helping to build the highway right. and getting the word out there that there can be different alternatives for different, different uh, horses for different courses. If you saw in the people, the people wearing Vimotas versus Beats, DJs and different genres that they spin, definitely see that Vimota consumers being different than Beats consumers for the most part. The, the, the biggest competitor with Vimota, I'd say, was probably Sennheiser, not, uh, not Beats. Um, that was or, the, or Pioneer. the workhorse yeah. headphone that was, was durable. And I still use the case. I just like the case, that cloth square case I use for holding other things. Hmm. I bring the Vimotas on the road, but everything yeah. else is in that cloth bag. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll never forget. I talked to some DJs and, you know, I remember Avicii and, and I were on the on a ferry over to Gansevoort or the island in New York. And he was holding two of those cases. And I'm like, you want me to hold one? He's like, no, no, this is like my record box. You know, like, and I was like, oh, wow. It's like, you know, I'm, this is the future record box for DJs. <laughs> I got to hold it. You know, it's like, I got to feel that energy is like, as if I was holding my records about to go to a gig. And yeah. I was like, oh, I never thought about it that way. And you know, you open up many, like his and many DJs, like, they open up, they bring a second case and just fill it up with USB sticks and their earplugs and, and you know, that's really, I spent a lot of time developing that case to hold your cables, earplugs for safety and, and, uh, and your SD cards and your quarter inch cable all on kind of in that nice little compact uh, exoskeleton shell. So that was a big, big project. And I think that was a big part of our brand and everyone, all the companies that we sold the headphones to, I remember whether it was Apple or Best Buy, they're like, how much does that cost? That must cost like, you know, four or five bucks to include. And I'm like, yeah, it does. But, um, but it's worth it, you know? It's part of the experience. It's, it's not like a one-time unwrap. Yeah, I'm like, no, I'm, I'm not going to get rid of that. Like, I'd rather spend $5 extra 
per package yeah. and make the back package bigger too. So I had to spend more on the packaging, spend more on the shipping. Uh, but I'm like, I really want to include this special case in the box because uh, it's a big part of the brand experience. I heard that some schools, you know, tons of people were wearing them on their backpacks and then it kind of caught on and people like it became a fashion. The carabiner clip. Yeah, the carabiner oh. clip. I remember some kids at Harvard saying, yeah, it became like the fashion item for every, all the Harvard kids had the, the, uh, the, the case shells on their back of the backpacks. I'm like, that's really cool, man. That, you know, really caught on. Yeah, it's a smaller footprint. I feel like that was my problem with all that DJ headphones was you'd have cases that were even bigger than the headphones and had no storage somehow. Like it was just a poor economy of space. Yeah. Yeah, and just coming up with little details to hold like the USB sticks and the, and the quarter inch adapters. Yeah. Uh, they thought I was nuts and our industrial designer thought I was nuts, but I'm like, I want to come up with every little detail I want to hit. I want it to fit SD cards, quarter inch adapters, and I want faders, earplugs, and the cables all to fit in that, in, in with the headphones. And they're like, Val, you're crazy. Like, it can't be done. And I'm like, no, it can be done. So, so how did you make the connection with the DJ community? Who was the first DJ to wear Yamotas? Um, let's see. Well, I guess how I first made the connection in the DJ community was Paul Wolkenfold kind of discovered me. I think I sent him a, a mixtape or a mix CD one day, and he, he drove up to my house and it's like, was this you? And, it had some like special remixes that I'd done in Ableton and, and he's like, how did you do those remixes? I think it was a, like a day and night Kid Cudi remix that I did to, on some techno like crazy track. So it didn't even sound like day and night anymore. He's like, that's really wicked. Like, how'd you do that? And I'm like, yeah, just Ableton. And you know, just, yeah, this is me. And uh, I showed him my DJ setup. And he's like, wow, do you want to go on tour with me? And uh, I'm like, yeah. Wow. So I went on tour with Paul Confold when he was on the Sticky and Sweet Madonna tour and me and him would do all the after parties. And that's kind of how I got into DJing and kind of, met a lot of people from there. And then uh, me and some of the promoters in LA, when I came back, we started this I Love House Music brand. So I became the resident DJ um, of that. And then we had a lot of guest superstar DJs with me. And so really kind of brought house music into, uh, so it was kind of planned where t uh, we used everyone from Paul Oakenfold to then, uh, you know, I was really good buddies with Tiesto at the time. So he would stop by and, you know, got a lot of, got a lot of DJs in and out of the, these little smaller clubs that then made house music much more popular, which was our goal in Los Angeles to then kind of spread it out into pop music. And it's really cool to see all the artists come and stop by our I Love House Music events to kind of see what was happening in house music and kind of bring that Ibiza style to LA, which then I've hopefully played a small part of infusing and making the remixes happen where uh, pop and hip hop started to blend in more with electronic and what was happening in electronic music. So the headphones were done and fully formed at this point and you just no. had them test them out? No, I was actually using Pioneers. Uh, I think it was the HEJ2000s, which were, happened to be my f favorite ones that I was kind of trying to beat out. So I would actually even have prototypes of our crossfades, but when I DJed, I'd, I'd be like, well, I'm afraid that they're going to break because they're all prototypes. So I'd use the Pioneer HEJ2000s and then... Um, and then I let some other DJs beta test the, uh, the crossfades, um, including some very famous DJs. Even Tiesto was beta testing them before I, before I wow. actually would even use them live because I'm like, okay, well, I got these other DJs, superstar DJs to wear V-Motos. Finally, I, when I got the prototypes better than the HDJ2000s, I switched over. That's really peculiar because I had to beat them to, to be able to switch myself, you know? So I had to, I was the owner of V-Moto using another brand, but... Uh, and I'd have the prototypes with me, but um, I wouldn't use them until we finally signed off. And actually, I think we, we lost the first prototype. Uh, I gave him to, I think it was Tiesto DJed in San Francisco at some club and then gave him to Dada Life, who played after him. And then Dada Life uh, lost them, I think. And then we never found, that was the, the sample that I had approved to be the golden sample, but it was lost at, in San Francisco somewhere. So the golden some, unit. Someone, someone has the first golden unit, but um, that was the first one that 
we actually all said, okay, we could actually play with this. This is amazing. Were any DJs investing in the company? No, it was pretty much me and family. And I uh, really tried to take, for the longest time, try to take no outside investors because I really just wanted to move quickly and, you know, not have any outside influences because uh, even, even having my family as an influence was like just becoming a little bit hard on me. Yeah. So to be able to move fast and make fast decisions, uh, I was trying to do it all by managing the cash flow, which was a just nightmare. Every summer would be bankrupt. If you think about it, making products is kind of like making Christmas trees, you know? You sell 50% in December and you never know how much to make and you have to build them in the summertime. So we pretty much would spend every penny I ever had and could get in the summer. And you just have to guess how many of which model and what color to, to make and then hope that by this January, you kind of shut, shut your eyes and say, okay, what happened? How many headphones, you know, do I have 20,000 left or do I have 100,000 left? Do I have zero left. I mean, and just kind of shut your eyes during, after, after the ad campaigns launch. And then it's very difficult, you know? So I'm really, I think I lost a lot of years of my life stressing out during the summer times. And then, so if you take on too many investors and there's too many people with board seats in a company, does that just slow things down? I mean, you've got too many masters involved, too many cooks in the kitchen. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously there can be the economies of scale and what they can bring in as advisors, you know, and help out. But then, you know, nobody, I felt like that nobody knows the business as well as I did. I felt like I had a great pulse on the market because of being so close to the headphone community and DJs and myself and, and consumers. Um, so, you know, a lot of times an investor would think that they know from their knowledge that, how the, that you should do this or you should sell in retail only or you should sell direct only. They can kind of control the, or, or how to design the headphone better because their kid, because of one thing that their kid said, <laughs> you know, and kind of hammer you on that. So... You know, there's pros and cons. After I sold 70% of the company to Roland, it was a great learning experience in a few years to be CEO of a Japanese-owned company. And Well, how did you get there? Yeah, so, you know, um, we saw that Beats was sold to Apple, and we saw that a lot of other brands that were surviving were kind of partnering up because of the technology that you need to build the future headphones, you know, after, you know, we went from analog to Bluetooth and then to noise canceling and beyond. So obviously I saw that, you know, to, to compete in the future was going to need a lot more technology partners and you have to kind of partner up. They came to us to develop a special version for the, their version of the 808, which is the TR8. Um, they tested, I guess, every headphone in this Japanese shop and said that this is the way that their sound intended for the 808 and 909. And they came to me and then, uh, you know, I never thought I would sell any of the company, but at the time my mom was having some health issues and my brother was getting out of the Air Force. And so, uh, you know, they wanted to kind of, get out of being the owners. And you know, I was thinking, okay, well, maybe this is a, instead of having them as being the, the people that are kind of guiding the future, you know, my own family, you know, my brother and parents, maybe it's better to get involved with a technology company and a music instrument company. It's like a famous one, like Roland. I guess they romanced me with their plan to come out with DJ products. And, you know, my dream was always to build a DJ mixer. They're the heritage brand. Yeah. And they didn't have a DJ lineup at the time, but they had come up with the Ira stuff and the, and the, TR8 stuff in the, in the mixers and, and the drum, like a TB3, like their, their 303, their new take on that. So their next stage was, the, was to develop their DJ mixer line, which they eventually launched with Serato. And they kind of mesmerized me that I could actually, you know, help develop the DJ line and, and make mixers for them. And I was like, okay, well, that's my dream come true is to kind of, to actually help develop those tools that become the new genres and, and, uh, and allow people to mix and, and make music and, in a different way was my dream. And to really be involved on the electronic side of that was uh, a dream come true. I mean, that was uh, yeah. really great. I remember stepping in the Roland Museum and seeing all their 
old instruments from the SH-101s to the Juno 106s to the, the System 100s and, and the, the old analog synths and just being like, wow, there's a lot of heritage here. And, and uh, overlooking this lake in the middle of Hamamatsu, Japan, it was really a beautiful time and a really great learning experience for me. And to learn from the, the Japanese culture and the management there was uh, to have so many years of experience in engineers. It's really a life-changing experience. And, yeah. Yeah. Did they DJ? Do any of them have their ear to the ground in terms of have the, any of them product managers <laughs> toured? Yeah, yeah. So there's there's a one guy who's who's a who's a DJ uh, by night, uh, engineer by day, in the one group that makes the IRA and the DJ mixer side versus the piano and drum side. Um, but yeah, really, there's only a couple DJ at night guys and me, and and then the rest were mostly engineers that knew a lot about the history and you know trying to obviously felt the future of the of DJs and yeah, but but they brought in a lot of also DJs all the time in their artist relations lounges and uh, from Kink to to other DJs that would you know any DJ that was really trying to in- integrate uh, live performance or live drum machines and keyboards into his mix, which you know today finally in 2020 we're seeing it happen more and more. We're even seeing modular integrated into live sets. But um, you know back when I was working with them, jeez, uh, that was like 2014, 2015 maybe even 2013, you know, it was still, still we had just gotten sync capabilities on our, yeah. on our CDJs and no one was really trying to sync up with the drum machines. So, but that was my vision for the future is that, you know, artists should be able to, to be able to put uh, samples and, and play a drum kit or, or melodies uh, in sync uh, with their DJ sets. And then, you know, with the extra time that you have on your hands uh, with the syncing and pitch control that you don't have to worry about anymore, you should be able to add some more elements and remix more live. Uh, have today. more control than just playing back stereo masters. Yeah, and then you know be able to do more creative stuff than just the flange or, or echo. You know, which uh, is coming with or white noise. You know, to add a lot more to the production. And then you know, as you you know, to grow as a DJ, I think you should be learning production skills. The first product was at uh, DJ 808, which was a, had the built-in step sequencer. Yeah, uh, that they, that they launched. So Roland buys seventy percent of the company. Is this life-changing money? Not really, because yeah. <laughs> uh, Do you go on a Lamborghini shopping spree? No, no. Cause, I mean, <laughs> actually, I, I bought a Lamborghini the day I sold my first fifty thousand dollar order. Wow! And I pretty much was like, yeah, it's gonna work out. So uh, just on a leap of faith, uh, that was just with that first fifty thousand dollars, I bought a Lamborghini. I just put a down payment and leased it, of course. And it wasn't life-changing money. So you know, definitely it was just. One, one day I was kind of happy in the pool thinking, oh, this is cool. It was more about not the money. It was more like the, that I wouldn't have pressure in the summertime to, to be raising money to buy enough products because I was always borrowing money in the summer to build enough inventory for the Christmas season. You right. Know? So to me, that was just like, okay, I don't, have Stress to, removal. I don't have to worry about inventory management as much, as much, especially when it comes to money. Yes, I have to worry about inventory, but managing inventory levels in a product-based business and then different versions for Europe and Asia and different warehouses with different inventory levels, you know, managing the cash flow on that is, is, is just uh, unbelievable. That's why Tim Cook was the, I think he did the supply chain management at Apple, you know, it's, it's just a very complex job. And you'd rather, even though you're a serial entrepreneur, you'd rather focus on the creative stuff. Yeah. Yeah. For me to focus on the creative and product design and get that deep knowledge focus is uh, from the users you know, really become a user, you know, so whether I was uh, DJing, you know, I really had to, to really focus on being a DJ and then be a producer to d- make the DJ, you know, work on the roll-on equipment, you know, I had to really dive down into every little detail of, 
you know, not only the how, what, what sonic palettes and the instruments that they want, but then also just even, you know, do we use USB-C or USB-A? You yeah. know, these big decisions that, uh, you know, is it too early for USB-C or is it just right now? You know, and, you know, so these... Because you can be too early. I mean, too early is, is failure sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, I always want to be bleeding edge. You know, I'm actually getting rid of everything that's not USB-C uh, now, but um, I'm trying to. But, you know, still like, you know, this recorder that we're recording on today is, I look at it and I laugh because I'm like, it's probably the one product that I can't get rid of that's an old mini USB, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's a good product. So it's, Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, does it get stressful if you're just doing transactional type business stuff where you've got to be, you have these runways and you have to stay afloat of, runways of cash to deal with, um, but you, your love is starting new businesses, yeah. getting the ideas implemented, and then moving on to the next thing? Or what, what, what do you love? Yeah, so, you know, that's a big question mark that I had in my head when I just was deciding whether I leave Vimoto or not when I... You know, Roland was very nice. After three years, we said, okay, you know, I kind of had a three-year contract after I sold 70%. And then we said, let's give it three years and then see if I'm going to stay or, or leave. And, you know, it was the hardest decision of my life, whether I wanted to stay with Fimoda and, or uh, go on my own. You know, it was like giving my baby away. But, um, you know, I just had to give it some really hard decision and say, you know, am I, am I a founder or a CEO? And that was kind of what they said to think about a lot, right. you know, can I be the CEO and you know, work with a, being a publicly traded company or eventually, and, or do I want to be more of the founder and entrepreneur type and, and CEO, you know, we're kind of in between and there was that kind of founder versus CEO level. I gave Vimoda my all for almost 15 years and, you know, it found a good home. Uh, I thought with Roland and I'm like, okay, it's not going to be uh, some fly by night company. You know, Roland's really much in it for the long term, And so I think it was a good time for me to kind of say, okay, let Vimoda grow there while I try to see if I can make a even bigger impact in my next move. You're only live as long as you're remembered, you know, right. so whether it was Elon Musk developing, you know, he started PayPal and then, you know, he, no one even talks about that. They say SpaceX and his other companies, but he started, he was like one of the founders. I think he coded PayPal, you know, but he doesn't even talk about that as like founder of PayPal. Yeah. No one remembers like the early arc of the story usually, yeah. which is really where you're, it's all forged. Yeah. You know, cause he made his money from PayPal and, you know, so I was like, okay, what, what can I do next? You know, it's hopefully bigger. Than Vimoda, you know, and, and audio, uh, you know, or make a bigger dent or maybe even a smaller dent. Maybe I want to just focus more on my own productions and, and in music creativity. Uh, yeah, what's the size of the dent yeah. you want? Yeah. So, you know, right now I'm just trying to experiment with everything and, you know, not, not sure what I want to do yet. I do have a non-compete, so I can't actually make, I can't make headphones and music equipment for a while, but, um, which is of course my forte, but, um, you know, I can try to experiment on making something else. Uh, Do you look for a gap in the market? Yeah. I mean, that's where I've been looking at, you know, what can I find like where a gap exists? Like, you know, colored headphones didn't exist. Can I find another gap like that? And designer headphones didn't exist. I mean, it's now a multi-billion dollar industry that didn't exist at all in 2004. Um, you know, but I, as much as I've been, as I've been looking, I can't find a gap that, that big. And, and nowadays you have Amazon basics and stuff like that. They'll come and, and all these companies can be super fast to follow you. If you don't have something that you can have a patent or build a moat around, whether that's a patent or enough branding or be different enough. To really yeah. Was that out. scary with the, the patenting process? I have no idea how that yeah. works when you are filing your patent and someone else is manufacturing it. Does that happen where uh, equipment manufacturers steal patents or things shift around when it's overseas? Like, oh, is yeah. that a scary world? 
Yeah, it's just, I mean, the patent and trademarks is, is definitely a world I've focused on quite a bit. You know, I actually wanted to become a patent attorney because I, I really love it. It's actually every time I met with a patent utility and I came up with a new invention, it's one, probably my favorite days ever still to this day of like, you know, when I created the 3D printed speakers or 3D printed caps or even the click fold hinge on our headphones. I think I got over 60 patents wow. uh, with Vimoda and just that. I was like, yes, this is like so much fun. You know, the industry is pretty small in, in headphones because there's only a, fa a couple factories that are now making almost all the headphone brands. I mean, wow. literally you can count them on, wow. on uh, two hands, probably one hand that makes 80% and two hands uh, that makes 90% of all headphones in the world. So, you know, it's a small community. If you just tell them, you know, this part is patented by Vimoda. You can't, you know, do you know that? And like really tell him so that way he knows if, if like Beats or Sennheiser or someone else is trying to use it, that will kind of warn them about the patent. You know, it's kind of one of the, one, that's at least what I did, you know, when we had a good patent. And then um, sometimes you want to look at other people's patents and see when they're expiring, whether it was Bose no, uh, noise canceling or something. So, you know, you got to always be aware of what patents are in there in any industry. And, you know, every little thing can sometimes be patented and sometimes isn't, but... Uh, yeah. yeah, sometimes it's better to not patent things, like, like Elon suggests in some ways, where if you're patenting, you're almost sharing everything mm. very publicly, like a public company. Yeah, so it was, one of the things is if you patent it, then you have to really show how not, not only the broad idea, but how it's implemented exactly. And right. then um, you have what's called claims, and you have to build on those claims, and you, know, you try to... It's kind of an interesting thing where you, you make it broader than you kind of define it further with the claims on how detailed of how it exactly works from a broad to then narrower in scope from the patent. You can usually work around that patent, you know, by not doing it in the same way. You right. know, you just don't follow the exact same way, but you kind of get the idea from there. So, you know, there's usually, for most things, there's kind of a, a workaround. There was that big article about the one-click buy, you know, that Amazon had, you know, where you could click one button and buy something, which was a big controversial patent that how easy that was and maybe too broad of a patent yeah. that maybe shouldn't have been given to them. Something like our click fold hinge, or, there's definitely many ways to get around that. Um, but the way that we implemented it was different. People could come up with something similar, but they shouldn't do it the exact same way as us. You know, and that kind of maybe challenges the engineers to think differently. And maybe that's also good for competition too, because they can then come up with another innovative idea that's different than ours. Right. So kind of builds on each other. So you know, you just worry about some companies getting too broad of a patent that really shouldn't have been uh, applied that you just can't get around. And yeah. that's pretty, that should be a, a basic necessity. They call it, um, you know, if it's not common knowledge in the industry, then it should, really shouldn't be patentable, you know, or if it's like just too simple. Right. It kind of is a litmus uh, stick of if it should be patentable, if it's obvious knowledge in the industry. And that yeah. maybe that, that one click probably was obvious, you know, maybe wasn't that too complex enough yeah. to be patented. <laughs> so what, in this next act of your life, what's really exciting you? Yeah, so my first thing that's been, I've been the most excited about is actually modular and analog gear and just playing out and playing music myself and getting into, you know, when I was working with Roland, I pretty much used only Roland products. So, so to be able to experiment with all the different brands out there and put it together in music production. So I've been really excited about I think that the state of the musician is really fun right now and, and uh, from hardware controllers to modular to, to synths and you know we're seeing a big resurgence of analog equipment and of course the uh, streamlining of digital audio workstations and, and the controllers and stuff is really exciting to me so you know that's one area that I've been a big passion of mine both performing and producing also just trying out some prototypes myself of building stuff you know special products I can't really talk about today yeah another technology that's you know just really been 
that I'm really big into is augmented and virtual reality and XR, mixed reality. Obviously, keep an eye on that. That really also folds into the, the third one, which I'm really in love with, which is immersive audio. What's in the history of that is pretty interesting, you know, because we went from stereo to quadphonic to, to 5.1 to 7.1 to Dolby Atmos and then to to what they're putting in video games today and then how it applies also to augmented and virtual reality or, or just even uh, into video games in general. Like uh, I think I was telling you earlier, like how, uh, you know, whether you want to hear if someone's shooting you from behind in, in, for, in right. Fortnite or if you're flying in a spaceship and you want to have a really cool soundtrack or something. Um, I've really been interested in how that works and how the acoustics should be optimized for that. You know, a lot of companies are working on that, even uh, Bose with their AR and, and Amazon did the, is doing the 3D audio, Tidal right. is doing 3D Echo audio. Studio. Facebook's doing a lot to push the 360 and immersive audio with their Oculus and, and all their toolkits. So I think a lot of companies are focusing on, you know, is this going to be the next immersive audio, or, which is 3D audio. I'm just saying immersive because it sounds a little bit better. I think 3D got a, a bad rap. With TVs. With TVs, yeah. It always was coming there and then it just kind of disappears. So, so I'm hoping, I think that's why a lot of people are talking to say uh, immersive audio versus 3D audio, but that's really what it is. And I guess the curved screens are done, according to Samsung. But. <laughs> you know, curved screens are still good for gaming because it kind of gives right. you that. Right. I, I still use curved screens for my for my gaming experiences quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so immersive audio and then, you know, headphones being optimized for gaming, you know, because that's a big, obviously everyone's going into gaming and, and uh, low latency. So yeah, but I'm also just trying, trying to take some time to explore all my other passions. Really getting in quite a bit to music production myself uh, also because I really want to explore that deeper path of what I have inside me and all that training that I took when I was a young kid and all those music lessons I took that I never really got to apply after college because I was set on that engineering path. Is it a different kind of flow state being an artist in the studio versus running a company or developing products or very similar? It's actually becoming more similar than I thought because, you know, I'm so much, I'm such a gearhead. So half my time I'm thinking about like how to set up my gear, which is kind of like engineering a product, you know, how do I set up my studio to, to, to be optimal and, you know, how do I do this MIDI connection and what's going to be my master clock and all the little details of the modular integrated into my digital setup. And so that really gets my brain, like gives, gives me all that energy I need to make my engineering side happy. And especially when you go into the modular stuff, I mean, it's just your head just spins and it's red of all the possibilities that you have things that you can do with it. Audio, as we know, is, is very, you have to be pretty technical nowadays to really play you with You've got to be able to troubleshoot. Yeah. And I mean, it's not just picking up a guitar anymore. I mean, you know, plugging up a, these, these electronic uh, instruments and everything is, is very detailed and then hooking them all up together. So, so yeah, I think that really satisfies my engineering side. And then, you know, the music production really can satisfy the art side. And so that kind of, you know, like developing a product, the engineering of the, of the, of the core circuits and the, and the physical and, and the industrial mechanical parts is the art part is the sound tuning during the day i like to work on the mechanics of everything and the foundations and the plumbing and wiring and how stuff works and then kind of at night 6 p.m kind of have dinner and then switch to actually trying to be more artist at, at, at that time is kind of fun you know and it's that circadian rhythm it's so true that people you know we were talking about night people night owls versus morning people and it's kind of the same thing though to me where that middle of the day is to me kind of a creative black hole yeah uh, it's better for administrative stuff. Like yeah. Do your calls, do the plumbing. Yeah. And then the muse, just something clicks on around five or six. You know, it's just magic. And it's just quieter. The universe is a little quieter then. Yeah. You know, I think a big part of it, I was thinking about it a lot. Like, why am I so much, so, so much more creative, especially when it comes to sound at night? But I think it's also because I'm a very visual person, my visual cortex. I'm, mm. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at everything and I'm taking that in. And at night, 
hopefully there's, you know, there's less contrast and, and you know, I'm seeing more black and, and then really my ears become more attuned. It really does change your hearing. Yeah. Like I change, that's why I do like the Philips Hue, different sound, different scenes of lighting. And if I dim the lights more, I feel like I can hear better sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look at how astute, uh, you know, a blind person is to their hearing. Um, I mean, it's definitely, I, I feel like, at least for some people, and at least for me, my music capabilities and, and hearing are definitely much more turned on after the lights go off. Yeah, and, and it feels like it's, it's almost like clutter makes something feel busy. So, like, if you have a lot of stuff in your periphery, in your, in your yeah. side of your vision, uh, your brain is trying to take in all these different inputs. And if you're, if you're paring it down a little bit, yeah. you're going to be more focused, probably listen better as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, whether I'm producing music or when I was DJing or tuning headphones at night, you know, seem to be kind of the, the best time. And then of course you have less distractions too, less notifications from workers. So you take that plus all the, the visual and distractions that you might have from notifications to, to just different colors in the room that are kind of, or lights that are distracting you or, or bad lighting, you know, yeah. whatever, whatever the case may be. And it's kind of a fun time to be more creative. Yeah. I mean, do you feel like now as everyone is a creator, hmm. I mean, now it's where, you know, Guitar Center has a whole aisle for podcasting equipment and for influencers, people are creators in different forms where they're not just DJs or musicians, but they're creating content in different ways. Do you think this is where it's headed and things are going to keep catering towards that kind of yeah. content creation. It's amazing to see. Everyone's always like, oh, have you watched that TV show? I'm really, I've always been a creator. Like I really rarely consume. Like I don't have TV. I don't, I don't, I'll sometimes binge watch a, a show or something, but you know, except for maybe I'll try to catch a sports match here and there. I just really don't have time to consume because I just really want to always create. Like, right. That passive consumption, that was yeah. more of the mainstream norm, I think, yeah. before, right? Yeah. Like watch a sports game, have no agency or interaction with it mm -hmm. other than yelling at the TV. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or drinking beers with your friends. But for me recently in, in the last few years and what we've seen with the YouTube and content creation generation, uh, whether it's Twitch or YouTube or music or whatever, it's it's really a golden age for creators. And you know the fact that they can do it all with the, uh, even their smartphone is just enabling it. And I think that we've seen the kind of the evolution of creation where obviously first it was reality TV, maybe where real people were getting on TV. And I thought that was so stupid. And then social media came and where people actually had an outlet to kind of create a photo of themselves or an identity online and, and kind of be a micro celebrity. And then to where we're seeing it today, where they're actually be called to be called an influencer that might have more influence than a real celebrity. And, yeah. and uh, whether it's on YouTube, Instagram, it's really a golden age for creators. And, and I think that's great. You know, I th I'm really happy about that. People that normally wouldn't want microphones or sound equipment or headphones are now trying to get the best or, you know, searching out the best lighting for their studios or, or to make them look better, whether it's on Instagram or YouTube and, and cameras. And, and then we're starting to see the, it all fold into the smartphone technology, but also the tools that they use. And so I think it's a, it's a great era. The, the only danger is that everyone's creating that news consuming. Yeah. <laughs> so is it what generations are consuming? But, you know, but there's so many new niches now. You know, I find myself just watching YouTube. If I watch anything, it's always YouTube. And just I find these niche channels of do-it-yourself guys making engineering products or cars or, or synths. And is it to become just more of a collaboration where the consumption is collaborative? and you're working together and playing off each other versus it being one-way street. Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, my, my consumption is always of people doing something that I'm trying to learn how to do or, you know, trying to kind of learn, get more knowledge of that area in this very niche area, right? Whether it's building gaming PC or, you know, so I might maybe like watch some news about the, you know, the gaming PC builds or 
or new video games or, or trying to learn more about uh, different ways of building a synthesizer and or something like that and in modular equipment or just trying to learn more about uh, certain scales. So my consumption when I do consume is more kind of learn, helping to feed my creation. Yeah. Right? So it's kind of then becomes that circle or you're watching another video gamer to learn how to become a better gamer. You're watching the Twitch because you kind of want to learn how to be a better uh, gamer to maybe make your own Twitch, you know? Yeah. Or, and then you made the headphones that that creator loved to make their own video that you watched. Like it can come full circle. Again. Yeah. So it kind of becomes like a higher level of creation. And then there's so much content then. I mean, it kind of becomes the other scary part is maybe there's just too many different channels of different types of content. And is there going to be an yeah, finding the content. Yeah, finding How does it, it surface. Yeah, yeah, rising above the surface and cutting above the other noise. It's great to be talking about this versus like where we were talking about the what I called the great compression of where there's bad MP3s and Napster era. You know, yeah. we're completely past that now. Now people are able to do even with the new Samsung phone, like do 8K video in there with <laughs> yeah. just their camera. You know, it's just like freaking amazing. You know, and that's and, pr pretty awesome. And I feel like the technology has matured where. Also with the loudness war being less of an issue, like you still have to get stuff crazy loud for the club, but now you can mix with a little more breathing room because everything's normalized to luffs, to you know, loudness units on streaming services and on YouTube. So you've got more room to play. It's a little more fun to mix records now, I think. Yeah, I think that's a great point because you know, if you have more incentive, you know, now that Amazon and Tidal and, and other companies are getting and even Spotify and Apple Music have their masters or HD or whatever they call them on their respective platforms. You, know, you have more incentive to make it sound better uh, for not only for, for consumption in a car or headphones, but for the club as well. We're finally out of that great compression era and into the a really new uh, renaissance era. Of, it's more uh, like fine-tuning it now. Fine-tuning and, and uh, exploration and, and uh, creative possibilities and hopefully creating some new genres. It's a great, great time to be alive in, in technology yeah. you know, and it see all like this. It's so focused now, the trend seems to be more micro-niches or the niche is is the norm versus it being just about pop stars and people with the biggest social media accounts that you're hitting people in a more honest way in a more direct way with a smaller audience, mm -hmm. but it's, it has more power. Like these channels have fractured more. Yeah. I mean, when you look at YouTube and look at all the channels, they, a lot of them are very narrow and I was going to create a YouTube channel and I, I kind of still want to, but why not? Well, yeah, I still might to just cover topics like we're discussing today or maybe to help entrepreneurs, you know, because I learned a lot from, from an idea to, to, um, to, to selling it and all the way in between and selling millions of units of a product, of a widget. And I had a company in, you know, different countries. You know, I opened up a comp company in Asia, opened up a company in Italy, opened up a company in America. So I have a lot of entrepreneurial experience. So, you know, would it be the topic of that or do I, or do I just review other people's headphones? Yeah. I don't know. Well, so, what would you recommend? If someone's a, a brand new entrepreneur mm -hmm. and they have a successful Kickstarter campaign hmm. and based on wins and mistakes in the past, what would you tell yourself? Oh yeah. So when I started my company, there was no Kickstarter Indiegogo. So that's, that's kind of interesting in itself because we could keep everything top secret until, you know, my, my, the whole thing was like, keep it top secret until the day that you launch. Like, and right. don't like, like, let, like even like even your internal employees, the marketing department can't know about your own products until like a couple of months maximum, <laughs> you know, I had like different levels of secrecy, and, you know, so everything was super top secret, but, um, you know, kind of Apple like, and, and that was kind of my mantra is to be ultra top secretive, but but, um, yeah, to get back to your question, I mean, geez, I mean, there's so many parts of entrepreneurship and being successful. I mean, obviously making a great product is, is number one, 
uh, and the quality there. And I think that's probably where I see when I'm buying products from, when I bought a few Kickstarter products or some of these more niche products that are, that are built. Uh, I'm really sad when I look at the, the, the construction and that they rushed it out the door right. or something wasn't fine tuned correctly. I mean, we would delay products for years. I just, I delayed the first over ear headphone and on ear headphone for three plus years trying to fine tune and get it right before I launched it. Cause I know that your success is going to be based on that first product. And if you're doing a hardware product, you can't do a software update. So you it's know, out the door and it's that's out it. the door and that's it. And that you're going to either have a consumer for life that loves your brand, or you're going to have a bad reaction and then you're going to be dead. So you might make some money at the very beginning. Uh, I forget that, that one of those first true wireless earphones that people were on Kickstarter, I forget the name, but maybe I shouldn't even name the name oh, if I knew it. I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah, but yeah. you know, they, they, they promised every bell and whistle and over promised. I'm like, that is impossible to do. Like, why are they over promising and under delivering? And sure enough, it was a disaster. And you know, they went out of business and Sure. It's like vaporware yeah. because the, the reality doesn't meet the expectation. So, so they always overpromise and underdeliver. It's better to keep it simple and really just get the best ergonomics, the best quality, the best durability. The amount of testing that we did was just incredible to make it durable and, and last and, and make the customer experience amazing. Like work on customer service, that 360 degrees of cycle of ownership from when it does break. We want people to have the best warranty and, and trade it in for future models and Versus just trying to get out the door with as many features is just a is just a recipe for a suicide. Unfortunately, that's also is the products that get the most funding on Kickstarter because it's promising stuff that can't exist. You know, it's got a good sizzle reel and the trailer they has an amazing trailer. rendering of it. They make a good video and then they promise the world, but they can't deliver even a city. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it's better to d- deliver an amazing micro city and, and uh, then build on that and build it over time, which is what we did. Is you know you add more features over time when the time is right and uh, versus throwing all, everything in the kitchen sink at launch, which is just a, a mission impossible for even the most experienced companies. We keep on bringing up Apple again, but, but you know, sometimes we'll like announce the white and black iPhones and then maybe the, the only one color launches or they, they couldn't come out with the charging mat. Even the biggest companies in the planet uh, have s- serious delays and years delays on products or can't even come out with them ever. That's very much a reality of manufacturing and qu- to make sure that the quality is consistent with your brand. So you got to always go quality first and everything else will follow. If you make a bad product, uh, especially in hardware where you can't do software updates, <laughs> you know, you're, yeah. you're really dead. You're just, uh, you might as well just take that money and run right, right there after the first batch because yeah. you, you won't get it. You won't be successful. Yeah. And of course, nowadays online, you know, physical retailers, is just, uh, you don't have to necessarily sell through physical retailers as much as online, which is kind of cool, but also is makes it harder for a lot of new companies, at least when we were selling to many units to, to a big chain of stores. That really does give you a cash boost when you launch a product, you know? And they handle the returns. They're the first point of contact yeah. for the return. Yeah, yeah well, it, from a whole cash flow perspective, it really helps out a lot, you know, to yeah. get those big orders up front when you first launch a product. You can sell it online and, you know, manufacture in smaller batches and kind of build it from there. But entrepreneurship is very difficult, no matter which way you slice it and very even more difficult the more years go by and technologies change two to three years might be you might be riding high but after 10 years and 15 years that's where you have a whole decade of technology changes and can you still survive in the in that age and yeah. you know every three years i was having to reinvent ourselves and our product lines and technology and fight against huge competitors when we first started we didn't have trillion dollar competitors and now still to today in the headphone industry some of these companies are trillion dollar companies that you're competing with. So it's unlimited resources, unlimited resources. Yeah. Can you outsmart them or can you 
create a niche for yourself is, you know, kind of what you have to always look at is where can you find what's your exact niche going to be that, that you can build and with whatever product you're, you're making. I always think it's interesting that there's all these books about achieving that first act of success. Mm-hmm. And then there's very few that are about sustaining that success and more about reinvention and keeping it going, like broadening the arc of your career. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, if you look at where so many products or companies started and now where they make their money, it's just, it's pretty amazing, right? Like where they ended up, you know, they do a total pivot and they're selling a totally different product. Yeah. Maybe you remember those jawbone that just was making the in-ear, uh, like what are they not now? It's more of the speakers. Well, then they, they were everywhere. And then they pivoted into speakers, which was brilliant. The Bluetooth speakers, they were the first popular designer headsets. Then they made the first designer cool Bluetooth speakers. And then that, that disappeared. And then they went on to uh, fitness. So they pivoted into completely different industries. Uh, and they actually were right. At the right time, they went into the right markets. But then they maybe were pivoting too fast. I don't think they exist today or very limited m- amount in the sports and fitness tracker space. I'm not 100% sure because, you know, now it's all on my watch for my, yeah. for my fitness trackers. I'm sure Fitbit and those other companies have found their own niches as well. So maybe they've found that niche, but it's really amazing to watch a company, you know, pivot from, you know, completely different businesses and, and uh, whether they're f- successful or like become like Samsung where they make microwaves to, to washers and dryers to, and to TVs, to, to phones. And there's, you know, Samsung 12 years ago. I remember I bought a TV. I was like, geez, I can't believe I'm buying a TV from a company that makes my, right. that makes my right. washer and dryer. I can't believe that. That was only 12 years ago. And now, you know, I, I become a Samsung fanboy of their, of their phones and, and all their new technology. And, uh, you know, they've completely added to their, their washers and dryers <laughs> business. And you don't even think of them as washer and dryer business. First and foremost, you think of them as a phone company first. And, and yet they're probably making the most money on their dram chips more than almost yeah. anything, which is what most people don't even know. They're, you know, conglomerate and make many product lines and versus do you really want to laser focus and make that one product or software? Uh, you know, that's a big decision too, especially with limited resources. You got to pick your battles wisely. And that's really important for, yeah. for uh, limited amounts of cash. Did you see the Steve Aoki commercial for Samsung where he's unwinding after the gig with a dishwasher and the, or the, the fridge and checking what's in the fridge and then a Roomba delivers him a sandwich? <laughs> no, I haven't seen that one yet. Yeah, but... So do they, that's their biggest area where they make the most money is the chips, the, the, the hard drives? Uh, I don't know. To be honest with you, I haven't looked at their financials in depth, yeah. but uh, I, would, I would bet that their system on chips and, yeah. and chipsets and, and the RAM... And SD, they supply Apple and, and so many other companies with the SSDs and stuff and hard drives that I'm guessing that a high percentage of companies use their screens and components. So you know, I know Sony also in the electronics uh, department is a lot of their core money now is made on making the, the components and the lenses, different parts. So not just the consumer products that you see every day, but the, the behind the scenes little parts that enable everything to work. I always say that the future is always in the chips. My interest is always in the chips and like the future, like little micro building blocks that make the Legos. Right. The, the guts, the not guts. the cosmetics. Because the feature that is in some Qualcomm chip today is going to be what's in the next iPhone or smartphone and then what's the application they're going to be built on that? So that's kind of always been my secret is like, let's look in the chip features right. and that chip is going to, you know, eventually a big company like Apple or Samsung is going to use that chip and then they have to build an app on top of that. And then what's that use cases? And then what's that product or service that can be used with that feature on that chip? So it's kind of the, the backwards way to look at it. Like we see the new Xbox and PS5 launching and what you're seeing with, whether it's with ray tracing that would came out earlier or whether it's 3D audio, I see those future technologies and that becomes the, the features that then benefit the consumer at the end. 
Well, it's like the UAD shark chips that they use where I was talking to Steve Duda, you know, who created serum and yeah. saying, why don't you just come up with serum? You know, I'm not a coder, so I don't know these things, but it's like, why don't you just have a version of serum that runs off, of, you know, they need more virtual instruments and mm-hmm. sure enough, UAD is launching virtual instruments this year, mm-hmm. but obviously you have to recode everything yeah. from scratch, I guess. You can't just port that in there. Yeah. But I, maybe that's one more direction we're going to see coming up, like latency-free soft sense within yeah. that Luna DAW that they have. Yeah, you know, I've been really interested in the VSTs and, and plug-in world. Um, as a matter of fact, you know, as a, as a coder myself and as a software coder, I'm going to start coding mixed reality and I'm going to start coding some plugins. Um, just get at least get my hands you know, dirty and look at what's under the hood there, you know, cause I haven't, I've never tried to program mixed reality or do unity or 3d software or, um, or a plugin. I really don't know what's behind the scenes happening there in the plugins. And I really want to know myself because, you know, as we were discussing earlier at lunch, like, you know, the bit rate that you use in your DAW, I mean, I really want to know what the plugin is doing to that. And is it, is it degrading the audio in, in any way? And, you know, or is it just using math? So it's not degrading the audio that you put in there. And because if you pass it through five plugins, I don't, I kind of don't trust what's happening under the hood of those five plugins in a row. So. Yeah, who knows? And who knows how many times it's clipping between the yeah. plugins. I mean, whether it's the, the levels that are not correct or if it's some something to do with the algorithm of the, or it's, it's dithering too much or changing the sound. I'm kind of, you know, it's just this unknown world of where your sound's going. And I kind of want to dig deeper under the hood and learn what's happening to my sound. So if You I'm, should watch this video uh, with the guy who created the Nexus plugin. Mm. And they had to recode it a good chunk of the plugin, if not all of it for Nexus three, mm-hmm. but he, he shows a little bit of the code. They kind of blur it out, <laughs> but it's so interesting to see the math behind the interface yeah. and the treatments in there. Yeah. So I'm like, you know, mutable instruments is this really cool modular brand that makes open source their code. And then even Korg is doing a lot in that area right now with, uh, you can build your own synth and then, uh, or add in open source effects and open source synth modules. So the code's all on the internet right now. And that's, what's really cool about the, What's happening too with from the open source era that we saw in software and Linux and stuff like that all the way to today, where now there's people d- doing uh, open source synths and synthesizer stuff in the modular world. If I was younger and even had more time, I just there's not enough time in the day. I mean, because right. I, I mean, I already take up all your time today. <laughs> I, I already downloaded the open source plugins and I've uploaded them into my Korg instruments and stuff, but I actually haven't got a time, enough time to program them myself. But uh, man, it's it's an awesome world. I mean, with from 3D printing to open source code to Kickstarter and Indiegogo. I mean, with augmented reality, mixed reality, all the arsenal of tools that, that young kids have to, to even us that have more experience have that can we, we can leverage is just a, un, it's a, it's a great year to be alive. I think this is yeah. the twenties, like the new eighties, you know? Yeah. Um, I think the eighties were kind of the golden age where we saw a lot of developments in gaming and PCs. And then this is going to be another golden age of, uh, of technology developments. Yeah. It's exciting yeah. times. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to be respectful of your time. I know, uh, we had some fun hanging out in the studio, checking out all the gear. Yeah. And we're going to hear more about these secret projects maybe in a couple of years down the line. Yeah. We'll get yeah. Some teases. Maybe I'll have a secret project starting to launch this Christmas, but I think I'm going to probably delay it to 2021 to get it right. Yeah. Before and shipping. Maybe even later than that. I'm, I'm taking my time. <laughs> No, I'm in no rush. I've been really silent in the whole media and social media. This is probably the, this is the first interview I've done in over a year. Got the exclusive. Yeah, I've been really trying <laughs> to hide under the rocks and not yeah. do social media and be uh, and really focus all my inner energy into being creative and uh, and just give it my all in creativeness. So, yeah, I can't wait to start to get get out there and, and uh, tell about what I, what projects I'm finally unleashing on into the world. But again, I'm gonna be, I'm going to be very secretive of it. Yeah, uh, I have no idea. To the. <laughs> Well, setup's looking good. It's great to see the place finally. Yeah. Val HQ. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, great. So, All right. Well, thanks for taking the time, man. Thanks, Appreciate Morgan it. Page. 
All right, so there you have it. Val Colton, the founder of Vmoda Headphones. Excited to see where he goes next, what products he's going to create. Definitely a serial entrepreneur. He doesn't like to sit still for long. So I know he's over in Italy uh, about to launch some new products. So we're going to keep an eye on that. I think one of the coolest things about Val is he could almost see around corners, especially when he was talking about how colored headphones were kind of a nascent category. They weren't around. It wasn't really in people's minds. It's something we take for granted nowadays. But he was able to see uh, the evolution of products much earlier than most people. So that's really what makes a great CEO and a great product designer. Uh, he's a stickler for details, especially in the case, if you've seen the Vmoda cases. Uh, there's little compartments to hold the headphone adapters, USB sticks. Little details like that have made the product a, a loyal following. So uh, the little details really do add up, and that design philosophy was crucial to Vimoto's success. So huge thanks to Val for stopping by. Excited to see his new ventures as they launch. Uh, you can check out more about him. Just search for Val Colton on Instagram. He keeps a pretty low profile, but we're going to be hearing more from him very soon. Thanks for tuning in. This is Airwave with Morgan Page. Airwave is brought to you by RME Audio. Innovative, user-friendly, and high-quality digital audio solutions, RME offers a comprehensive range of audio interfaces, converters, and mic preamps, all based around its unique and innovative core technologies. Multi-platform connectivity across Windows and Mac OS and iOS class compliance has earned RME a global reputation for providing support to all users on all platforms. Visit rme-usa.com to learn more.